Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. My name is Anna Fagala and I am your host this morning filling in to introduce to you our teacher, Peter Snell. Peter is going to be teaching the third lesson in our four lesson series on the New Testament. Peter is going to be covering 21 books of the New Testament this morning, Romans through the book of Jude. It's a lofty goal. I know he's going to do an excellent job highlighting the major themes and highlights in those books of the Bible. And so without further ado, I give you Peter Snell. All right. And so like I said, we'll, uh, I'd like to welcome everybody to our Bridge Builders class. Um, today we'll be talking about the New Testament epistles or letters of the kingdom. So, um, you know, over the last few weeks we've been going over these lessons that are up on the board the king and his kingdom the people of the kingdom last week david gave us our lesson on um, the major themes of acts so we'll recap those starting out and then we're going to run through and summarize the major themes of romans through jude that's about 21 books of the bible so we'll try to then connect all of the themes of these books to the story of the kingdom and then end our lesson leading into next week, which will be the return of the king, um, and will lead into Revelation. So let's recap from last week. Some of the major points from David's lesson were um, that in the book of Acts, we see through the persecution and scattering of God's people, the church or the Christian movement spreads internationally. So through something really bad, people getting tortured, killed, you know, Christians being put to the test, something really amazing comes out of that and actually causes like a viral spread of the church. And so the church becomes a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and meant for all. And so also in Acts, Paul continues to boldly spread and influence God's kingdom. When he's from behind bars, he's in prison, and he's writing these letters. And these letters are very powerful. They're very influential, as we'll see today. And another major point that David made was God's kingdom comes to earth by Jesus, the Spirit, and His church. And that faithfulness to God is shown to us by sharing the good news, forming diverse communities of kingdom living, which if you haven't heard Chris's lesson this morning, that kind of goes along with what he's talking about in welcoming sinners into our church, and trusting the Spirit's power and guidance. So that was last week. In Acts. So let's jump into the letters of the kingdom. So letters or epistles uh, in the New Testament, there are about 21 of them. 13 or 14 possibly are written by Paul, and those are written to specific churches. And then about seven or eight are written to various church leaders or uh, uh, the church as a whole, the whole Christian movement. So there's, there's different audiences that each of these books have, and we'll break those down this morning. So let's jump right in. We'll have a few little breaks in between we, uh, talking about this marathon of books of the Bible. So uh, I hope those can uh, keep everybody wrangled in, you know, because it's a lot of material to go over to, uh, this morning. So let's, let's jump right in. So M Romans, written by Paul to the Gentile Christians in Rome, and it was written so that he could enlist their help in spreading the gospel to defend the truth and develop this gospel message that he had been preaching. So he had planted these churches and he's trying to develop it. In Romans, he articulates the foundation of Christian belief, which the whole idea, if you could sum Romans up into three words, it would be grace by faith. 
And Romans explains how the good news of salvation has been made available to all through Jesus' death and is actually worked out through the Holy Spirit's work in us. Uh, one commentary I read said that it called Romans a treatise by Paul to Romans on justification by Christ. And just of note with Romans as well, uh, Romans was a major influence on Martin Luther who sparked the Reformation movement. And this discovery of faith alone justifying us, not just our works, is, uh, was, uh, was a critical spark for um, the Re Reformation movement. And so, kind of in a nutshell, Romans can be boiled down to um, one verse. If we had to do it, this is what it would be. Throughout my presentation, um, there was this really cool website I found that had unique art uh, to the verse that kind of sums up each book of the Bible. And so um, that's what you'll be seeing with some of these books of the Bible this morning. So this verse from Romans can kind of boil out down the message of the book itself. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Okay, next up is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to the church at Corinth. And the thing about Corinth was it was a commercial hub in Greece. And what he wanted to do with his letter in 1 Corinthians was to restore balance to this church plant that he had made. If we had to split it up, 1 Corinthians would be more about Paul rebuking the Corinthians and some advice on some key topics like um, division, sex, divorce, and suing. And then 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of vents a little bit. He tells about some of his frustrations with them and some of his disappointment in their church and ends it with making a call to unity. So you'll see this thread kind of throughout the epistles, this call for unity and warning against uh, false teachers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions a lot of practical advice on Christian living. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, it, I kept thinking this reads a lot like, it sounds a lot like a boss running like a, like a staff meeting and telling people like, let me set the record straight. You've heard about this policy. Let me clarify this for you guys. Uh, and, you know, it has a lot of language like, now about this, about division, now about, um, you know, divorce. And then it'll tell clarify that policy. So I kept thinking about that as I was reading through um, 1 Corinthians. And then 1 Corinthians also uniquely talks more about spiritual gifts than any other book of the Bible. So that's one important point about 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth felt that their spiritual gifts were um, kind of what set them apart or it made them feel very self-important. And so that's probably why he addresses that a lot with this church. He emphasizes that, hey, I know you guys have a lot of spiritual gifts and you're really great at those, but let's not forget that love and unity are of greater importance than your individual spiritual gifts. And so 1 Corinthians, the theme verse would be uh, chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians. Paul vents a little bit on his disappointment in the Corinthian church and again makes this call for unity among the believers. He discusses handling dissension, false teachers, and church leadership. If you look through all of the epistles, 
ev almost every single one of them has a huge portion of it devoted to warning against false teachers. And I think that's because that's probably one of the main problems with this new movement starting is people were kind of going off track and not, not staying true to the message that Paul had initially left them with. So as a result of that, Paul has to kind of write these letters and steer them back on course and prevent them from listening to other false teachers that might be planting the seed of division or false teachings. And the way that he does this is Paul has to defend himself as a church leader because a lot of these false teachers would try to discredit him by saying, well, you know, don't listen to Paul. Why are we listening to this guy? Um, and so Paul had to actually use his personal integrity and the truth of the gospel as his main two foundations for, hey, this is why you should believe me, you know, Corinthian church. It's because, you know, I have, I'm a person of integrity. I've always been true to that. And also, this message that I'm telling to you is true, and it doesn't contradict anything. It is uh, beautiful, and it's perfect. And so, that's how Paul kind of keeps his message on point and makes his case for the Corinthian church. So, if we had to boil 2 Corinthians down to a verse, it would be, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So, Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you guys are dividing. There's this big division between you, but um, I have faith that you as a church are going to come back together. You're going to follow my call to be unified and restore unity in the church. So moving on to Galatians. Galatians was written by Paul to the church in Galatia, which was a Roman province, which is now located in mo modern-day Turkey. And the purpose of Galatians is to denounce false teachings. Remember I said this is going to be a theme we'll see through several of the epistles. And these false teachings had kind of infiltrated some of the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established. They were, uh, one of the ways that they were corrupting Paul's message is they were kind of trying to spin it back toward the old way of doing things. So, um, a lot of people that had been following the ritual laws of the Jews, they were trying to tell new converts that you've got to do things this way, you've got to do it the Jewish way, you've got to become like us and do all of our Jewish practices. But that was completely opposite of what Paul was saying in his gospel message. And again, Paul had to defend himself to the Galatian church to tell them, look, I know that the false teachers are coming in and they're attacking my personal integrity, but... Um, but please listen to me. See that I am a credible source and that you should uh, follow the teachings that I'm trying to tell you. One of the main themes in Galatians is this idea of freedom in the law rather than bondage. So another major theme that you'll see throughout many of these books is so many of the early Christians, it was a very different um, paradigm to have to adopt that my works no longer matter. Like, I don't have to follow these ritual traditions and do ABC in order to uh, be right in the sight of God. It comes down to faith. Now, is that a faith that's just based on words? No. The faith without deeds is dead, right? But it was hard for them to wrap their mind around this idea that faith is what, see, is what uh, saves them. And so, um, you know, the church at Galatia, Paul was trying to impress that message on them, tell them that, 
hey, these laws, they're not meant to, to bind you down. We sh you shouldn't felt, feel bad about not being able to um, own up or to live up to the standard of the law because Jesus comes in and he fills that gap for us. And so that's the major theme of Galatians. And so the theme verse for Galatians would be chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So this idea of bondage, God wanted, and Paul wants to let them know and press on them that we are free through the sacrifice of Christ, which is a beautiful message. So that's Galatians. Let's move on to Ephesians. Is everybody still with me? We're going to take a break just in a second. So Ephesians was written by Paul to the believers in Ephesus, which is um, a city in the modern-day Turkey. And it was written to remind the Ephesians that they should act like Christians. Um, if you can imagine, like I mentioned earlier, having to adopt this new standard of living, so this brand new way of interacting with people, you know, the type of words that you use, the way that you interact with your family, the way that you interact in business practices, these were all new ways of uh, this, this new standard that they were having to live by. And so you can imagine how it would be hard and it would take some time to really um, adjust to this lifestyle. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the Ephesians here. There are three major themes in Ephesians, grace, peace, and love. So grace, first cha in chapter 2, verse 8, it impresses on us the idea that we are saved by grace and therefore we should show grace to others. So we've been given grace, so we should give it away to other people. This idea of peace, at the end of the day, we are all sinners. We all deserve wrath, the wrath of God. But since we are adopted by God through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can live at peace with each other. We should have that peace in the back of our minds, knowing that we're all sinners, we're all in the same boat, and so we should live in harmony with, other, uh, with each other. And then, of course, the idea of love, that God shows his love to us through Jesus. Therefore, we should love one another. That means our relationships must be rooted in love and we must walk in love. So it's very convicting if you think about the idea of, you know, my motivations or my uh, motives for making decisions or when I interact with people. Is that interaction I have with them, is it rooted in love or is it uh, rooted in selfishness or pride? So think about that as you examine some of the decisions that you make day to day. The theme verse for Ephesians would be chapter 4 and verse 1 through 2. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, Ephesians, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Wow, if we could just adopt that one phrase into our lives, uh, you know, how much conflict would be avoided, how much better would the world be if we could just honor those uh, simple few words. Okay, so this is break number one. Which epistle talks about spiritual gifts more than any other book? Anybody remember? Vanna? First Corinthians, okay. First Corinthians talks about spiritual gifts. What about the next question? Which epistle talks specifically about the law representing freedom and not bondage? Galatians, yes. Oh, yes, you guys are so good. All right, last one. Speaking of bondage, 
How many games out of 200 has Chandler Parsons actually played for the Grizzlies as of December 12th? Anybody want to guess? 73. Wow. I am so impressed. Did you just Google that? All right. So, Philippians. So, Philippians was written by Paul to the Philippian church. And the Philippian church was, uh, a, Roman, it was a Roman colony located in modern-day Greece. And Paul wrote it while he was under house arrest in Rome. And if you read Philippians, I think probably one of the unique things about that is more, it's one of the most encouraging letters of all of Paul's epistles. And I think it was so encouraging because the Philippian church was one of the main supporters of Paul. Uh, he talks about thanking them for sending him funds, for um, helping with his living expenses as he awaited trial in Rome. And so the majority of Philippians is very, very encouraging. Of course, he does warn, warn against false teachers, and he encourages unity, two of, one of the, uh, two of the major themes that we've talked about in many of the other books. Philippians talks a lot about finding joy in the hard times because if you think about it, this was a Roman colony, and you had a church planted there, and so as a result, they were experiencing a lot of persecution, they had endured a lot of trials. One of their members, uh, Epaphroditus, had uh, decided he was going to visit Paul while he was under house arrest, but he had gotten ill and was not able to go. And also, the Philippian church was being constantly encroached upon by false teachers. And so, as a result of this, um, one of the major messages of Philippians is to find joy in our hard times or find joy in suffering. One commentary describes Philippians as seeing how faith can be dressed in everyday work clothes and putting lofty truths into practical terms, which I really like that. I've, I feel like I'm very practical, and so a lot of these books are uh, really great to go through for me. Philippians 4 verse 4 would be our theme verse, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Moving on to Colossians. So, Colossians was written by Paul to the believers in Colossae while awaiting trial on an appeal to the emperor, uh, the Roman emperor Nero. Nero, if you remember, he terrible, terrible leader, amoral, I, I believe, if, he, if I'm correctly, he, um, he was the one that actually uh, beheaded Paul. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but the main, the one of the main themes of, or of Colossians is that um, Paul wanted to impress on them that they should be defending their church against the Gnostic movement. So if you're not familiar with the Gnostic movement, it was kind of a hybrid between paganism, Christianity, and this Platonic philosophy. And it was skewing things uh, and becoming very confusing for the early day church. And so Paul has to specifically preach against that and encourage them to defend themselves against this Gnostic movement. And one of the ways he does that is by helping them understand that we don't find our identity in ourselves or in how much we know or in our spiritual gifts. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. And he is supreme and authoritative. One of the theme verses would be Colossians uh, 4 verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. And so that's kind of Colossians in a nutshell. First Thessalonians. 
So Paul really thought that the church at Thessalonica was doing a great job. He really spends a lot of time in his book to the uh, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, commending them for the way that they were living. They were living holy lives in a culture that was really hostile towards Christians. And so 1st Thessalonians probably one of his most positive letters in the Bible. It contains a lot of parallels to our modern day. He gives a lot of practical advice on Christian living. If you can think about it, you know, we live in a society where we need to be countercultural. We need to be people that uh, don't do things um, the same way as, uh, as the world does. And so if we find our identity in that, um, I think we can identify a lot with the, the Thessalonian church. Thessalonians gives a lot of practical advice like in chapter 4, verse 12, 11 and 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we, Paul and Timothy, told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. There's a lot of unpacking we could do in that verse, but just from a bird's eye view, I think that's, good. that's a good lesson for me. You know, Mind your own business and work with your hands just as we've told you so that you can win the respect of others. You know, someone that maybe goes firing, you know, firing off at uh, their mouth at the drop of a hat or getting in arguments, sowing discord amongst their friends, family, co-workers. I don't think that's the type of Christian living Paul's talking about here. I think that we uh, live humbly and work hard, then people see those things and um, once we win their respect, then maybe they can start glorifying God um, as we show them with our lives. So the theme verse for 1 Thessalonians would be, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So even though the church at Thessalonica was doing a great job, he wants them to keep excelling. And so that was one of the major themes of 1 Corinthians. Moving on to 2nd, Th I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians. Moving on to 2nd Thessalonians, it was written again by Paul, and it was probably written within a year of his previous letter. But a lot of the research that I read and commentaries on this said that this was probably like a stronger dose of encouragement for the church at Thessalonica to really stand firm. So it might have been that he felt that their, you know, their courage was handy, was um, hanging on you know, the edge of a knife and he needed to give them a little extra support. And so he writes this second letter to them and he talks about many false teachers trying to convince them that Jesus had already made his return and there was really nothing to be looking forward to. And that was a very crushing blow to someone in that day because they had heard for so long growing up about this day of the Lord that we're waiting for. And so um, Paul mentions to be on the lookout for that and don't be discouraged by these people that are trying to convince you that Jesus has, not, that Jesus has already come. And just a word on some of the early churches. Why would Paul spend so much time communicating with these churches? You know, Paul was uh, a single guy. He intentionally chose not to marry. He didn't have any children. And so these churches were like his children. And actually, in his letters, he refers to them as loving them like a mother to her children. So if you can imagine, like, 
a worried mother like writing a letter to their, her child at college or something. You know, that's, I kind of see that as Paul, you know, he's worried about these churches and he wants to check in on them and encourage them, you know, hang in there. And so he writes these multiple letters to uh, the church at Thessalonica. Chapter 3, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And so uh, that's one great verse that I really like in 2 Thessalonians and probably could be um, the theme verse for it. We want to strengthen them, we want to protect them, and you want to be faithful to God. Moving on to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy with advice on how to improve the church at Ephesus. So if you remember, Timothy, he was the son of a Jewish mother and grandmother, and his father was Greek. We don't know a whole lot about his father or his father's faith, um, but we do know that he probably met Paul as a teenager and met him early in his ministry. And so he was probably a, a new convert or an early convert, and he grew up as Paul's kind of spiritual son. This very special relationship um, is between Paul and Timothy, and so it's very paternalistic. He, he really talks about Timothy with great love in his letter to Timothy. Now, some of the major themes in 1 Timothy are church leadership, talks a lot about instructions on how to worship and how to choose your overseers, your deacons, a lot of logistical things like that. And then it also talks a lot about godliness in 1 Timothy. So one of the things that is most prominent in 1 Timothy is the number of times that it talks about godliness. It actually uses that word for uh, piety or godliness more than any other book of the Bible. It talks about how to treat widows and how to treat the elderly, slaves, how to treat your money. This is where we get the verse, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. So a lot of practical advice in 1 Timothy. And probably the theme verse for 1 Timothy would be, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the church, that phrase kind of hit me as very interesting. You know, the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. Do we think of ourselves as the pillar and support of the truth? I think that's a really really cool way of thinking about our church. And it's a lot of responsibility. So moving on to 2 Timothy. And I, um, you know, I got kind of sad reading 2 Timothy because 2 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy in his second Roman imprisonment. And this was his final charge. This was Paul's final, um, his last lecture, if you will. Paul realized that he had come to the end of his life, the end of his ministry, and he was about to die. He was about to be martyred. And then you just put yourself into that, that, that jail cell, and you think about all the things that you would be thinking about. You would really be thinking about your legacy. You'd be thinking about the work that I've done. What's it all been for? And so you see some of these feelings come across in the book of 2 Timothy. It really is kind of sad even towards this, the end of 2 Timothy because Paul talks about all these people that have abandoned him along the way. Um, now that he's in prison and a lot of people have just sensed, oh, okay, well, Paul's, he's dead. He's, 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 you know, a lost cause. We shouldn't spend any more time bringing him stuff or hanging out with him or, you know, visiting with him because he's about to die. 
And so that would be very, very demoralizing if you were put in that position. So he talks about that and, uh, in the last few verses of 2 Timothy. You know, the last moments of a dying person's life often have a significant impact on others. Uh, I was thinking about this. I was, I was talking with Tara uh, yesterday. I was working at the hospital, and there was a patient that passed away, and it was an expected thing. It was very, he was very sick. Um, and then uh, probably 15, 20 members of the family were right there in his dying uh, last few moments. And as I was interacting with the family, and the patient, I had to think about that these last few moments will be imprinted on this family for the rest of their lives. And so I think that's what makes Timothy so special to me, Second Timothy, is that these are thoughts that we're hearing from a person in their last few moments. And uh, so if you read it from that perspective, it kind of gives you um, a really interesting way of looking at it. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. And notice the confidence of Paul in this verse, right? Do you, could you say that right now? Could you say that you know, in 10 years? Could you say that 10 years ago? That I have fought the good fight, I have done absolutely everything I could. I have left it out, all, all out there on the court. I have poured out every drop of myself into this ministry, and now I'm ready to receive my reward. I think that's a, a beautiful statement, and if we have that perspective, I think it really changes some of the decisions that we make. So 2 Timothy can probably be boiled down to this theme verse, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. Paul's telling him, I've told you all these things. You know all of these things. Hang in there. You, you know what to do. And so, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which are Christ Jesus. So break number two. We're doing good. Did you know that in the UK there's this guy named Chris Juby, and he actually tweeted a synopsis of every chapter of the entire Bible from 2010 till 1,189 days later, he consecutively tweeted a summary of each chapter. So if you're looking for a good summary of each chapter of the Bible, that's one place that you might look. So I got to thinking about this, you know, because everybody's posting their Facebook pictures from 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I was like, you know, what, what were we tweeting about in 2010? Was I summarizing chapters of the Bible? Um, and then I got to thinking, you know, if you've ever, an interesting thing to do, maybe on the way home today as you're driving, pull up your Facebook messages from like when you were in college or like 10 years ago from your early days of Facebook and just read them out loud and try to see if you don't cringe. <laughs> because Tara and I have done that before and it was just, we had to stop. We were so embarrassed at ourselves. Just a lot of LOLs, a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth. Anyway, I'm getting embarrassed just talking about it. So I can't, I can't, I have to move on. So let's move on to Titus. So Titus was written by Paul to Titus, who was one of his protégés, one of his close friends and ministers that worked with him and helped him lead the church at Crete. So I kind of read Titus as thinking about Paul being a consulting firm. You know how there's, some, there's these consulting firms that can come into churches now and make an evaluation of them and tell them, these are the things you're doing well, these are the things that you need to work on, these are the healthy aspects of your church, these are the things you might need to uh, look into as weaknesses. 
And so I think that's what Paul is kind of doing in the book of Titus. He's telling Titus, these are the things that I see about the church at Crete. And it's a similar message to the other epistles. You know, be on the lookout for false teachers. Appoint leadership by doing this, this, and this. They have to have these certain qualifications. And then guidance for Christian living. One important verse I, I really liked in there is it kind of appeals to a wide audience of all age groups. So chapter 2, verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, the older women to be reverent in the way they live so that they can train the young women to be self-controlled and pure, busy at home and kind, and the young men to be uh, self-controlled. A lot of self-control being thrown out there, so we can see how important that is. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So that's kind of what the book of Titus is about. Moving on to Philemon. There's lots of different ways to pronounce Philemon. 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 I don't know. I was reading lots of ways you can pronounce it, and I was like, have I been pronouncing that wrong my entire life? I just say Philemon, um, which sounds like fleas, but anyway. Written by Paul to Philemon, a wealthy Christian in the Colossian church. So the story with Philemon, he was a very wealthy person and he had a slave named Onesimus who had run away from his master. He had escaped and he'd become along the way a follower of Christ. He had met Paul in his ministry and uh, converted over. Well, now that Paul had met him as a new convert, Paul asks Onesimus to return to his master and he writes the book of Philemon as kind of a plea to Philemon to forgive Onesimus and welcome him as a brother. So just step back and think about that situation. You know, Philemon, who owns this slave, um, has a slave that escapes. And can you imagine how mad he was? He might have been furious. He might have sent out like a search party trying to find him, spent money trying to find him. And people that... Um, or slaves that ran away in those days, if they were found or caught, they were subject to torture and death. They, they were really dealt with very harshly. And so this very countercultural, um, upside-down way of thinking that Paul is trying to encourage is, you know, he meets Onesimus and says, why don't you go back to Philemon and bring this letter with you and show him that uh, you're now a believer and you want to foster this uh, relationship as a brother. And maybe even more, it was a, you know, a, a task for Philemon or a, a hard thing for Philemon to be able to accept him back. This person that was his property at one point in time, he's now supposed to welcome them back as a brother. And so giving him that forgiveness would be very difficult. C.S. Lewis says, everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. And I thought that was really interesting because... Philemon really has the chance here to provide a case study in forgiveness and demonstrate the nature of God. Someone that is um, <clears throat> kind of a prodigal son who's gone off and has um, uh, wronged someone else in some way comes back and um, mends that relationship and there's forgiveness between the two and uh, brotherhood and there's unity. Those are all themes that we see throughout all of these uh, books. And so Philemon's a really great book demonstrating f forgiveness. The theme verse of Philemon would be, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a little while, that you would have him back forever, no longer a slave, 
but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So that's Philemon. Next is Hebrews. Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote it. Could have been Paul, could have been Barnabas, Luke, Apollos. We don't really know for sure. But it served as kind of a warning to the Hebrews or Israelites to stand firm against the hardship that they were tempted to revert to um, the Old Testament ways. So Hebrews uses a lot of Old Testament imagery as a result of that to illustrate how Jesus is supreme and how he is better than all these Old Testament ways that they were used to doing things. The way he does that, first of all, Jesus is shown as being supreme over the angels because he is the divine king. Jesus is shown as being supreme over Moses because Moses was a servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God, so better. Jesus is greater than Joshua because Jesus gives a greater rest to his people. So think about Joshua leading the people uh, in the wilderness, giving them a day of rest. How much more rest can Jesus provide than that one day of rest that Joshua gave? And then Jesus is greater than the priests of Aaron because Jesus, unlike the priests of Aaron, doesn't have to do all of these rituals and cleansing to make himself sinless and immoral. I'm sorry, immortal. He was already sinless and immortal, so he, hadn't, he didn't have to do anything. He was greater than the priests of Aaron in that way. So if Jesus is greater, then what does Hebrews tell us that we need to do? And what did, he, what did it tell the early church that they needed to do? Well, we see it in this verse, which would be the theme, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, um, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, for he who promised is faithful. And so, great words in Hebrews to live by, to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Next is James. James, I kind of think about as like the ultimate guide to Christian living. We've kind of talked about that in several of the other books, but I really feel like James is super practical. And it was, really, it was written by an unknown author, uh, but most sources think it was probably James, the brother of Jesus, to kind of all believers. And it was possibly the first book of the New Testament that was written. And James is interesting because it teaches that it is possible to believe the right things, but live the wrong way. So it emphasizes how the tongue is uh, a fire that corrupts, like a great forest being set on fire by a tiny spark that must be tamed. <clears throat> and then you know, this idea of faith without works being dead. So back when James was writing this book, there was a misconception that uh, since Jesus abolished the law, of, the law of Moses, then all you needed to do was to have faith to be saved. And um, that was very difficult for the, the um, early Christians to swallow because they grew up in this society where they had to do ABC in order to be saved according to the law. But James says, you know, yes, your faith is what saves you, but you can't just have faith only in words. It must also be in deeds. And so James tries to set the record straight that faith alone does nothing. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers he who, uh, I'm sorry, who delude themselves. So be doers, not merely hearers. 
1 Peter, written by Peter to the believers kind of scattered throughout Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And the book of 1 Peter offers encouragement as they faced intensifying persecution. So I think about that when I read the, the book of 1 Peter, I think about uh, him setting the expectations for the early Christians because there were lots of people that were, they were tending to fall away because they, they were running to, into all this adversity. They, didn't, they, you know, they were getting persecuted. They were getting killed, tortured. And so they were kind of of the mindset of, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I signed up for. And so Peter tries to set the expectations about Christianity in the book of 1 Peter. I kind of think about it as like when one of your kids is sick and you know they're going to be up all night, they're going to be coughing, they're going to be snotty, you're not going to get any sleep that night. If you go into that night thinking, okay, I'm just not going to sleep tonight. I'm going to drink some coffee, I'm going to read a book. If I have to stay up forever and rock them, then that's fine. And then you have that expectation so that when you're up all night, it's not like your expectations are um, not met. And it's a lot easier to endure that hardship if you have that expectation. Whereas if you're not expecting your kid to be sick and they wake up or something unexpected happens in the middle of the night and you're like, will you just please go back to sleep, please? It, it, it's a lot more difficult to endure that hardship. And that's just a small example, but um, I, that's the kind of way I see Peter laying out these expectations about Christianity. He says, you know, in the, this Roman Empire where you're a Christian, we're going to be aliens. We're going to be residential foreigners in this society. But that's not such a bad thing. Anybody go to the JT concert last night? Not such a bad thing? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we might have some JT fans in here. Um, we are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a spiritual house, and a holy nation. Since we are a chosen people, that makes our behavior around others that much more important. Others will see our behavior and glorify God, just like in the Philippian jailer um, was a great example of that. Suffering now, Peter says, results in salvation later. Suffering is a test. We need to view suffering as how we identify with Christ. You know, Christ suffered. And so if we suffer, then we're becoming like Christ. And that was a very interesting aspect of 1 Peter. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. 2 Peter, written by Peter as his last attempt to help the global church by reminding them of the truth. So this was kind of like Peter's 2 Timothy. So this is Peter's final address where he's giving his last lecture, his goodbye letter. And he encourages the church to be diligent. He warns against fake news, these false teachers who lead in, uh, people astray and indulge in sin. And um, he talks about avoiding the mockers who are trying to get people to dismiss Jesus' return, kind of similar to the other epistles. He talks about a lot about the power of memory and how words are very powerful. Uh, the theme verse for this, chap for this book would be, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So, we were going to do some Sunday school unsolvables. Anybody know what the first color mentioned in the Bible is? Green. Anybody know the most used word in the Bible? The. Most mentioned woman in the Bible? Sarah. All right, book of the Bible, which God is not mentioned. Anybody know? Yes, I think I heard it. Esther. 
So almost to the end, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by the Apostle John to a group of churches near Ephesus. 1st John talks a lot about love. It mentions love more times per words than any other book in the Bible. And he's trying to help the the believers know that they have already found eternal life. Um, that don't lose hope. Don't lose, don't lose sight that you already have this eternal life and you don't have to do so many things to try to achieve it. As Second John stresses in abiding in truth, being aware of false teachers. And Third John talks about walking in the truth and uh, rejecting, uh, rejecting false, false teachers and rejecting seeking personal power. Um, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that's 3 John um, verse 4. And then the finally, Jude, written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, as a call to fight for their faith. No weapons, not with weapons or violence are we fighting this fight, but by loving God and showing mercy. So it's kind of like a call to arms, but without the arms. Your arms are love and mercy. These are the weapons that we should use. Uh, against um, evil in this world. Jude warns of infiltrators causing division in the church and kind of like computer alerts, the more you get like alerts on your computer, you develop alert fatigue. Jude is kind of a designed to encourage the church to keep up their guard. You know, don't get fatigued by these warnings that I'm telling you. Uh, stay on your guard because when it comes to spiritual warfare, the less you are aware of the fight, the, the harder it is to recognize the enemy. Um, I thought about C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letter saying, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, with, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So that would be our theme verse for Jude in 3b. So take-home points from today about letters of the kingdom, things that we can apply from all these epistles. I think one of the major things, one of the major themes is that we should seek unity, not division. We should remain vigilant against false, false teachers and always be checking the things that we hear in the scriptures and making sure they coincide with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we should also find joy in suffering, so that when we suffer, we should count it as not something that is, uh, should be separating us more from God, but should be bringing us closer to Him. And then um, this idea of forgiveness, demonstrating the nature of God. So when we live out our lives, we make decisions, we interact with people, forgiveness is what demonstrates God's nature. So next week, we'll talk about Revelation and the return of the king. So make sure you stay tuned and come back for that. And uh, let's close with a prayer. Thank you so much, Peter. That concludes our episode 56 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. What a great way to look at the epistles of Paul and the other writers of the letters of the New Testament uh, and see just kind of the key points and sort of what the different themes are that they're addressing throughout um, the writings of the New Testament. I really enjoyed it. I hope that our listeners enjoyed it as well. One of the things that you missed out on was the PowerPoint, which was a really good resource to have. But Peter also 
also included some neat artwork so i will include the link to that website in the description of this podcast and you can go and view um, the different watercolors with the verses the key verses from each book um, that peter talked about we enjoyed it this morning i hope you guys enjoyed it as well and we'll look forward to tuning in next week um, when we go over the book of revelations to conclude this series thank you so much y'all have a blessed week